You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Bob Trapani, Jr., Executive Director of the American Lighthouse Foundation, author, photographer, and lighthouse technician. Hey, Bob. Good afternoon, Jeremy. This is a beautiful day here at Owl's Head Light, and just happy to be here with you. Well, thank you so much. It's a gorgeous day here, too, uh, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. A, a warm uh, fall day, beautiful color and everything. Just, just absolutely gorgeous. So uh, we're actually recording this on October 22nd, but uh, this episode is slated for October 30th, 2022, and this is episode 197 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear part one of a two-part interview with four people involved with Doubling Point Lighthouse on the Kennebec River in Maine. Before we get to that, the lighthouse season is winding down here in the Northeast as we get into later fall and colder weather, although it's so beautiful today. Uh, so how do you think the season went for the American Lighthouse Foundation and its chapters, Bob? Jeremy, the season was fantastic. You know, we came off the last year uh, you know, when everybody just was able to get out again and enjoy lighthouses and every other activity in life. And we're sure how this season was going to go. You know, would we see, you know, less, more? And it's been right steady as it was just about from last year. So we, we're tickled pink. And I think from a lighthouse preservation standpoint, it was just wonderful to see even more volunteers back in action. I'd like to say that 2022 was kind of a rejuvenation for volunteers helping our lighthouses. And we saw so many great things based on what they were able to once again contribute with their uh, time and talents. Well, that's all excellent news, of course. And uh, yeah, we had a good year here at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, uh, our chapter, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. We did our tours by reservation for the second year in a row and uh, remains to be seen how we'll uh, handle that moving forward in the future. But the, the reservation, the tours by reservation usually sell out and people seem to really love it. So it's, uh, it's been a, a very good season. So I just want to mention again, uh, we are recording on October 22nd. This episode is slated for October 30th. We kind of did a Halloween-themed episode last week, in case anybody's wondering why this isn't a Halloween-themed episode. Uh, If you want to hear some Lighthouse ghost stories, check out the previous episode, episode 196. It featured an interview with uh, Patricia Heyer, author of a new book on haunted lighthouses and other locations on the New Jersey shore. So, Bob, the subject of this episode and next week's episode is Doubling Point Lighthouse in Southern Maine. Let's give our listeners some background before we introduce our guests. Sure, Jeremy. The city of Bath, Maine, on the Kennebec River, has long been known as the City of Ships. By 1800, Bath's shipyards were producing vessels used in domestic and international trade. Today, the Bath Ironworks, a subsidiary of General Dynamics, is one of the largest defense contractors in the world and one of the largest employers in the state of Maine. Doubling Point Lighthouse was established in 1898 on the northwest end of Arousic Island at a sharp double bend on the Kennebec River near the shipyards of Bath. It was one of several aids to navigation built on the river in the same year, 1898. Also established at that time were light stations at Perkins Island and Squirrel Point, as well as a range light station near Doubling Point. In 1935, the keeper's house at Doubling Point was sold to a private owner. The keeper at the range light station a short distance away became responsible for both stations. Responsibility for looking after the light later went to the keeper at Squirrel Point Light Station in 1980. 
Beginning in the early 80s, Dublin Point Light was again monitored from the Dublin Point Range Lights Station. It became the job of one keeper to look after the range lights, Dublin Point Light, and Squirrel Point Light, as well as their fog signals. For a few years, this job was performed by Coast Guard bosun mate Karen McLean, one of a very small number of female Coast Guard lighthouse keepers. Karen, whose husband Dan headed a Coast Guard unit in Booth Bay, Maine, lived at the keeper's house at the range lights with her two children. In February 1987, Dan took charge of the light station, marking the first time in Coast Guard history that a husband relieved a wife of command of the same unit. Under the Maine Lights program, Dublin Point Lighthouse was transferred to the Friends of Dublin Point Light in 1998. The group was led by Jim Spencer, who had already been working to save the lighthouse for a couple of years. In December 1999, the tower was lifted off the foundation and moved into temporary storage. Meanwhile, a contractor reset the granite blocks of the lighthouse foundation, each weighing about six tons. Over the years, the Friends of Dublin Point Light have completed a number of additional restoration projects, including the reshingling of the lighthouse tower and the reconstruction of the wooden walkway that leads to the lighthouse. The guests in this episode are Karen and Dan McLean, who are now taking the lead roles in the Friends Group. Also joining in the interview is Jim Spencer, founder of Friends of Dublin Point Light, and his wife, Joyce. Jim and Joyce are the longtime owners and residents of the Keeper's House at Dublin Point. I met with Jim and Joyce Spencer, along with Karen and Dan McLean, at the Keeper's House at Dublin Point just a few weeks ago. Bob, I believe you know all four of these people in this uh, interview today. I do, Jeremy. I do know all four, although I am still looking forward to my very first meeting with Karen and Dan, and we've agreed that, that we'll make that happen probably this later this fall, and we're looking forward to it. But yeah, the Spencers have known them probably for about 18 years, uh -huh. and just wonderful people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, over the years, there were uh, I visited that light station many times, and uh, Jim would sometimes be out in the, in the yard, and I chatted with him. Uh, so again, uh, going back to the 1980s, I've visited that place so many times, but this visit for this interview was my first time inside the house. So that was pretty cool. Uh, it was also my first time getting to have a long conversation with uh, all four of them, the McLeans and the Spencers. It was a great day. So I split the interview into two parts and let's listen to part one of the conversation now. I am speaking today with Jim and Joyce Spencer and Karen and Dan McLean, and we are in the Keeper's House at Dublin Point Lighthouse in Arousic. Am I pronouncing the name of the town correctly? Is that how? Okay, Arousic, Maine. Yeah, I've been here many, many times over the years to this lighthouse, but I have never been inside the Keeper's House before. So it is a, a rare treat today to actually have a chance to, uh, to get inside the house. So. Thank you all so much for your hospitality, for hosting me today, and thanks for, for doing this today. I really appreciate it. And I want to start with Jim, uh, a little bit of background on how you came to be the owner of this house. I understand the person who originally bought the Keeper's House back in the 1930s was a relative of yours. How did that come about, and when did you start living here? Well, I have an aunt named Irene Anna who lived with uh, Amy Thurston. I don't exactly know why, but they got very interested in lighthouses, and they went and read about them, and when they found out that this lighthouse keeper's cottage was for sale, and it was available on public auction, they bid on it, mm -hmm. and they gave 
what I regard as quite a high bid for 1935 of $2,200. <laughs> and they were a high bidder and they won the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely ecstatic. And they came up and spent summers up here uh, and went out in the boats. And of course, the, the roadway was very primitive at that time. And there was nobody nearby except for the keeper of the range lights. And I want to uh, clarify this because I'm not quite sure. Have you ever lived here all year round or has it just been in the summers or how, how has that worked? We have lived here all year round, but not back in those days. Mm -hmm. We came up for summer vacations. Uh, I worked down in Connecticut and, and uh, Joyce and I really enjoyed it up here. We went swimming and up around this place, one must realize at this time that there was no electricity here, mm -hmm. uh, there was no plumbing, uh, there was no drinking water, there's a cistern in the basement here, and an outhouse outside, and, and we had kerosene lamps. And this a is back when he was a child. By the time we got married 60 years ago, they put in the bathroom for us, for, for the new bride. Wow. And and they put in the last two electric poles for electricity. But when what Amy and Irene came, it was the way he was describing it too. Yeah, very primitive. Yeah, and Jim, when you first experienced it, it was like, like when that. I first experienced it, it was very primitive. And um, I was here actually as a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, I th they hadn't bought it yet. I was born in 1936. With my family, when we would come up here. We, I would run out as a little kid out to the lighthouse on the walkway and ring the bell, if I could, to the many, many ships which were going by in those days. There were oil tankers, and it, it was very different from what it is today. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, I, yes. I asked you but how you You asked me bell. if I ever lived here full year. Right. And uh, I have, we did that recently, much, much more recently, after I retired from my work in 2001. Mm -hmm. We actually came here in 2005 because we had to sell our house in Connecticut. But we were here for two years, so through two winters. Meantime, we were building a house on the other side of the island on some land that Jim's parents bought in the 1940s. But otherwise, before that, we were always here in the summer, and he was here. His parents were teachers in a university setting, so they had long summers off. So he, he's been here since he was tiny. Yeah, uh, I think it would have been the 1980s uh, or 90s, I guess it would be actually 90s. You started the uh, Friends of Doubling Point Light, right? That's, cor that's correct. How did that come about? My daughter and, and, and we realized that things were happening to the lighthouse. The Fresno lens was disappeared, and the bell eventually disappeared, and the lighthouse appearance of the walkway was changed. And so we became very interested in it. And there's a pen, guy named Ken Black who ran the what was called the Shore Village Museum, and he uh, actually had the Fresno lens in his museum. He didn't know where the bell was. And uh, we got really interested in trying to find out where these artifacts were that were missing. Mm -hmm. I was asked for some reason to 
give a talk at the Marine Museum. And I had pictures of the lighthouse and pictures of various things. And, and after giving the talk and discussing what the situation was, some people in the audience got interested in it and offered to help uh, discover what was going on. And around this time, uh, Olympia Snow and other people were starting this organization, which was necessary because the Coast Guard wanted to get rid of responsibility for taking care of the lighthouses. Right. And so the main lights program was created up yep. in Rockland. And uh, I decided with, with my family and with these, some of our friends around that we ought to be interested in this. And uh, we put a lot of effort into it. I could go into much more detail about yeah. that later. Oh, I'm sure. I know, I know from ex personal experience how involved that kind of thing can be. Well, I, you know. I think you were involved in it, weren't you, that time? Um, I think I was in touch with you at that time and certainly in touch with your daughter, Margaret. She got so involved in trying to find the bill and everything, too. And um, that same year, she and I came up here during her spring break from high school, mm -hmm. and we went to as many, many lighthouses as we could see between Portland and, and Acadia, and we checked out all the bills, too. <laughs> but every, every place we've gone, we've always been interested in lighthouses. We've been to ones in Bermuda and um, in California, and often, usually Margaret was with us. So she's our youngest daughter, but she's the one who came really involved in this and wrote about the lighthouse and looking yep. for the bell for her, one of her essays for the many colleges that you apply to now. Another thing about your daughter, she was actually married here at the lighthouse, I believe. Is that right? Margaret yes. was yep. married here, yes. Yeah. And um, she's not the only person who's been married here. She married a young man. She met in Alaska. She went there two summers for summer jobs from uh, college. Mm -hmm. And um, they were married right down here on the lower lawn. We had a very small family wedding. Since he was from Alaska, they couldn't afford to send very many friends <laughs> to Maine. So it was really aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. Margaret allowed me to invite her godparents and one other couple she was close to. And um, I think we had maybe 25 people, but it's, it was a charming wedding, and I have pictures out there I'll show you later. She just loves this place, and she now is the next owner. We've passed it on to her, but Jim can tell you that after his, his aunt and his godmother owned the cottage, uh, then it went to one of his aunts, then to his father, mm -hmm. then to Jim, mm -hmm. and now to Margaret. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she has four kids, and I'm sure it will keep going on in that family. Great. We haven't actually said what was wrong with the lighthouse that needed to be done. Yeah, I know. I there feel was some, at some point that yeah. ought to be stated. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. It was a very. <laughs> I know there was a very pressing need. The found. The, talking about the foundation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, what happened? So the, the the friends when we applied for the ownership for the friends at the Dublin Point Light, mm -hmm. two uh, there, there there were really some problems for the lighthouse. The foundation was being knocked to pieces by the ice flows that came down um, the river in the spring. Mm -hmm. The foundation had been made of beautiful, huge granite blocks, but they were set on top of each other. There was no supporting lining inside, and the crashing lights, some of them 
half a mile long with had high tide with backed into this at six knots. And and then also there were other things going on at the same time. The uh, needed to be painted. The walkway was falling apart to an extent and uh, needed repairs. That was really the motivation in a sense to was to fix the, the lighthouse. Yeah. And that needed funds to be raised. And, and so were the friends became the vehicle for doing that. And uh, relative uh, through the years, we've been quite successful at it. Yeah, yeah. I remember that job when the uh, the lighthouse was actually lifted off the foundation, so it could be. It was lifted repaired. up by Reed and Reed. Reed and Reed is a is a marine contractor up in Woolwich, mm-hmm. and they kind of brought a big barge down here with a crane and lifted the lighthouse, took it up above the bath bridge, and it was sitting on their dock. Blinking uh, <laughs> for wow. the for for months until the, the uh, foundation was rebuilt, mm-hmm. uh, all filled with uh, uh, cement and uh, appropriate steel contracting, and uh, put and put back on there. Yeah. Subsequently, we built the walkway, right, putting it back the way it had been in eighteen ninety eight mm-hmm. uh, when the lighthouse. And its other lighthouses on this river were all built together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember that that project when the lighthouse was lifted off and the foundation was repaired. I followed it very closely. We at got the time. a lot, of, lot of publicity yeah. for that. Yeah. We were actually on the Weather Channel for a couple of days. Really? Okay. And yeah, I remember that being all over the news. My brother for... saw it down one of the Carolinas where he lives <laughs> <laughs> on the Weather Channel. Oh, that's that's great. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and uh, it organized the group very well and, yeah. and a lot of these people have been loyal to the group for years after with us. Mm-hmm. That's that's great. That's, you need uh, local support for sure. I do want to talk more about the preservation of the, the lighthouse today but I'd like to bring Karen and Dan into the conversation at this point. I'd like to talk about your really interesting careers in the Coast Guard uh, at lighthouses uh, largely. And uh, first of all, could you say a little bit about how you met, which I think related to your Coast Guard careers? When I reported on board Coast Guard small boat station in Gloucester, Massachusetts in 1978, Dan was already there and we met. Okay. Yeah, I know that station quite well. Yes, very active in the fishing industry. Yeah. Were Were you married when you were both at Gloucester? We met in 1978, and mm-hmm. we married in 1980. Okay. And you were still there at Gloucester at that time, or no? I, I was on my way to being discharged from the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. So I, I subsequently left the Coast Guard in September of 1980. Okay. Uh, when we got back from our honeymoon, we were welcomed back by the command by uh, them letting us know that we'd be in separate sections, so we'd only see each other one weekend a month because they didn't want to have a husband and wife working together. Oh, wow. You Later, you went back in the Coast Guard, though. Yes, I, I was up for four years and went back in in 1984, and that's mm-hmm. when I went to Booth Bay Harbor. Moving ahead to 1982, a couple of years after you were married, Karen, at that time you were assigned, I believe, to be the, the officer in charge of the Kennebec River Range Lights, which, and please, before we talk about that, I keep getting confused. I know... 
uh, in some uh, official documents over the years, it's referred to as the Kennebec River Range Lights. Sometimes it's referred to as the Doubling Point Range Lights. Under the Coast Guard, is it the Kennebec River Range Light Station? Is that is that correct? When I originally received my orders mm-hmm. for the lighthouse, it was for Squirrel Point Lighthouse. Oh, okay. And that was in December mm-hmm. 1981. By the time I reported aboard in January 1982, the Coast Guard decided they would move the keeper from Squirrel Point to the range light oh, okay. dwelling to make it more practical for the family. And at that time, they also decided that the one keeper, myself, would be responsible for the Squirrel Point light, the Doubling Point range lights, and also the Doubling Point light. Right. So to do that, what they did is change the name officially. Ah, okay. It's to Kennebec River Range Light Station. Mm -hmm. So that incorporated the three previous stations into Ah. one name, which is why officially... It was renamed and closed as Kennebec River Range Light Station. Yeah. It was changed while we were there to right. incorporate the move. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. that, that makes it very clear. Thank you for, for explaining mm-hmm. that. I've always been a little little uncertain about that. So you just said how when you were uh, living at the Range Light Station, Karen, you were in ch- also in charge of uh, Squirrel Point Light and this lighthouse here, Doubling Point. That's a lot of responsibility. Uh, and none of them had been automated at that time, right? You were correct. Yeah. So you were really a, a lighthouse keeper in the traditional sense at that time. I believe that I qualified as a lighthouse keeper. Yes. Yeah. The lights themselves were, were automated with the daylight control sensors, but at squirrel point, the fog signal had not yet been automated. So anytime after we reported aboard, the fog came in or it snowed or rained, any time of reduced visibility, mm-hmm. I would have to go to score point light to turn on or to turn off the fog signal manually. 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. Yeah, and it wasn't the easiest place to get to. You had to go on, you didn't go by boat, right? You went. We, uh, we were not provided with a Coast Guard vessel to get there, so we had to get in our vehicle drive to Squirrel Point, which was about four out, four miles, mm-hmm. and then start to walk yeah. or cross-country ski or snowshoe. And for a short time, we also had a snowmobile, but I chose to not use a snowmobile. Yeah. It, it was not a very good snowmobile for any kind <laughs> of deep snow. And that's when I first cut my back. <laughs> oh, Pulling that thing out of the ditch, just coming down to this station at Dublin Point, because... At that time, they were in the process of switching out the bell for Dublin Point Light to an electronic, well, it already was an electronic bell, but the control was at the range light station. So mm-hmm. we had to turn that on and off there as well. Okay. Uh, or any time we had a problem with the batteries here. Yeah. But we, Charlotte and I have experienced that trail to Squirrel Point a couple of times. And it's, it's, not, it's not just flat either. It's kind of up and down and... Well, it crosses through the marsh a yeah. bit initially, and then it, it kind of goes uphill with tree roots and rocks. And so the snowmobile was not the best solution for that. But yeah. And we often had, during the good weather months, had to carry supplies to do work that needed to be done out there. And later on in my career, I had one baby in the snuggly and one in the backpack <laughs> going out that trail wow. to tend to the light. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I also know from experience that it gets really buggy there in the, in the oh, summer. They drive you away. Mosquitoes. Yeah. 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 So, boy, that must have been, been tough at times. So you just mentioned your kids. You had a son and daughter born yes. during your lighthouse keeping days, right? How did how did that work out? Did they enjoy being little kids at the light light stations? Yes, they did. Um, our son was born in 1984, and our daughter was born in 1985. Mm-hmm. And I continued as the keeper until 1987, so that meant juggling, childcare, and work, mm-hmm. and then. As then Dan, Dad became the keeper later on, I was sent to South Portland to work. So they quickly became not only independent, but they also became little helpers. Mm-hmm. They enjoyed living there, especially our son. He was mission-oriented from a very young age, so he enjoyed meeting with the visitors and explaining the, how the range lights worked. Mm-hmm. And our daughter was a little social butterfly, so she just enjoyed visiting with everyone and sharing her smile. I'm just going to say how impressed we are to hear this stuff. I didn't realize she was had a baby here, a baby on her back, and she had to do that walk out to Squirrel Point. This is why we wanted to listen because we haven't heard some yeah. of this stuff. Well, I see. I was in Booth when I went back in the Coast Guard. I was gone 48 hours at a time, or on weekends it was 72 hours from Friday morning to Monday morning before I got back, so, and there weren't many people no, as there are down here for neighbors. Yeah. Babysitters were few and far between around here. <laughs> Until I got the job. <laughs> yeah. we'll go so, were your kids sad to leave the, the station? Our daughter, again, being a social butterfly, looked mm-hmm. at it as an adventure and she was very excited. But our son, on the other hand, was sad. Mm-hmm. Um, he was once asked by a newspaper reporter TV reporter, perhaps even, how he felt about leaving the lighthouse without a keeper. And he said, I'm sad because there will be no one here to take care of the lights. He considered it his little mission. And he was a different little boy when we were moved onto a big military base Mm -hmm. from this beautiful, idyllic spot that he had always known as home. Yeah, yeah. So it was... Yeah. You just said idyllic, and that's what I th- how I think of these places, both the Doubling Point light station here and the range light station. They're just so, so pretty. Yes, so, indeed. yeah, did you enjoy living there in general and enjoy the changes of the seasons and all that? How, how was it? Again, idyllic is a great word. I, I love being, we both love being around the water. And mm-hmm. back then, there was still commercial traffic, not nearly what it was when Jim was growing up. But we still had a couple of fishing boats and tugboats and ships around. So there was a lot going on. And it was always beautiful there, but in a different way. Uh, the biggest negative part is just interesting to talk about is that when you finally get to spring up here in Maine, you embrace it. And when you get that first day of sunny weather in the low 50s or high 40s, you just rejoice except at the rain slides yeah. because the wind comes off the water on those days where you have radiational cooling off the land. Mm-hmm. So it'll blow 15, 20 knots there on those days. And now you're down to the high 30s or the low 40s in temperature because of the effect of that cold water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that wasn't much fun. But. No, and with so much to do with the four light towers to be responsible for, we had to work 
in any weather condition that we could possibly get, get outside in. So mm -hmm. that's why we remember the wind so yeah. distinctly. And you were, not only did you have to watch the lights to the fog signals and everything, but you had to maintain the buildings at all these places, right? To some degree. Uh, yes, the buildings, we have an extensive distance of walkways. This walkway yes. is one example here, but the range light walkway was significantly long to get to yeah. the rear range light. So the brush had to be cut down so it didn't interfere. Right. All the painting of all the structures, except for the ones here that the Spencer family mm -hmm. owned, we had to take care of those painting, general housekeeping type of things. Yeah. We also did a lot of public relations. We had a budget to keep up with. We had... Yeah, it, the range light specifically, you could not get to the rear range light when we got assigned there because there had been no keeper there. The H navigation team in Portland were responsible to keep the lights blinking, mm -hmm. uh, but they didn't need much attention because they had four, six lamps and a lamp changer, and that would last probably two years before they'd have to do anything yeah. with those light bulbs. Uh, so a lot of brush cutting. Yeah. And there was a railing that went all the way from the front range to the rear range. And that was the hottest thing to paint because they had inside corners and outside corners. And, uh, and yeah, it, that's why there were family lights. Uh, when I was a civilian, I worked right alongside her whenever I did not have an excuse to go do something else. Yeah. <laughs> that's just it. It is a family lighthouse. And because you're responsible to keep the aid to navigation operational and the fog signal, we had to be home a lot. Mm -hmm. So we had a very tight family unit. And I think that's why it impacted our son so much when we had to leave. Yeah. Because that's really, I mean, we were, that was his secure place. And that's where he spent a large majority of his young life. Yeah. So like he, you know, being home yeah. is something unique, I think, with lighthouse keepers. Sure. You just can't up and go on a weekend vacation or anything you just yeah. you're there a lot. right yeah yeah absolutely so uh you you mentioned a few minutes ago doing pr i wonder if some of that relates to the fact that you were a rare woman keeper under the coast guard lighthouse keeper there were certainly a lot of civilian lighthouse keepers in the lighthouse civilian female lighthouse keepers in the in the lighthouse service days but not many under the coast guard uh, and I think at first you were the only one, I think, at the time and possibly the last one under the Coast Guard. Do I have Is that correct, do you think? I can only share what I had been told yeah. as far as that is concerned. When I was given the orders to Squirrel Point Lighthouse, which I sort of asked for a lighthouse because Dan and I were ready to start a family and certainly didn't want to go on a ship. And we realized the difficulty both doing the same type of work for the Coast Guard, how hard it would be to be assigned in the same mm -hmm. geographical area. So I asked for a lighthouse yeah. knowing I was shooting for the moon, but they had this one in Maine and they offered it to me. So I was told that my assignment officer had to get special permission from his assignment officer because a female had never been assigned to a Coast Guard lighthouse for the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. So it was approved and I came on board and I didn't really give it much thought when we first got here because what Dan said is true. It had not been manned for a long time. So there was a lot of work to do to get the unit ship shape. And I just focused on trying to yeah. do my job to the best of my ability. But within a very short amount of time, 
the word got out that there was a woman keeper at the lighthouse. Yeah. And that's when lots of interest developed yeah. from newspaper articles, even... Uh, three, there were three TV news reports, mm-hmm. at least, if not four, done on you. So that somehow led to one specific unique responsibility that I was given in association with the Hyde School here in Bath. Mm-hmm. There was a lieutenant in Portland, Maine, working with a representative from the Hyde School summer program. And together they decided that they would send several of their summer enrolled girls by canoe to the range lights mm-hmm. to tent out for a few nights. And I was asked to be their mentor mm. and give them their work assignments and enjoy their presence and survive. <laughs> Hopefully get some work done somewhere along the lines. It was the most unique thing. Yeah. And I still look back at that. It ended up being a very memorable, enjoyable experience, mm-hmm. bonding with the girls. Mm-hmm. They've never held a paintbrush. They never had to cut brush or mow lawns, but they did. Yeah. And they ended up enjoying it when it was over. They were, they, I think sent them by boat because they really did not want these girls to realize there was a road to get out of there. <laughs> However, with vehicles parked in the driveway, it didn't take them long to figure that out. And their meals were delivered by road as well. But uh-huh. they settled down and they really, really were interested. That's great. And we had fires in the evening and um, played yeah. ball on the lawn. And it ended up being a good experience, oh, yeah. but I honestly didn't think I was going to survive at first. <laughs> it had to be a great experience for them born and around them? Yeah, they were alive and I was working at Booth Bay, but I wasn't there all the whole for the whole weekend, I believe. I forget how much time I was actually there for. If you don't mind, I'm going to go back a little bit to how Karen got assigned to okay. the light station because it's worth noting that we had decided that we were going to leave the Coast Guard together after I'd gotten out. Mm-hmm. And when her enlistment was up, she was going to join me, and we were going to hopefully go down to Florida. I had gotten my captain's license, and we were going to get a job on a yacht as a husband and wife team to, to operate the boat, maintain it for whoever owned it, and hopefully live on a yacht and put some money away for the future. And the Coast Guard ruined that plan because Karen, when she told the Coast Guard she was going to get out, uh, the Coast Guard said, no, you can't. You can't. We we." We need people like you. Yeah. Obviously, a, a female mentor at that time were few and far between for the Coast Guard. And they said, what will it take to keep you in the Coast Guard? Mm-hmm. And that's when she mentioned the lighthouse. And to give some justification for what kind of a job she did, she was temporarily assigned down to Point Allerton mm-hmm. in Hull, Massachusetts, uh, because the commanding officer down there had several females, and he felt he needed a good mentor for them. And her being a bosom mate, it really is and always has been a typically man's job, even all these decades later, because it's an operational job. You wear a gun belt, body armor, you were in charge of the boat, you were in charge of the work details. Yeah. It's a very highly operational position. Uh, he wanted her to go down to that station in Hull and qualify as a coxswain in that area. Yeah. Now, to be a coxswain to operate a Coast Guard boat, you have to first have the qualifications and the experience, but you also have to learn the area. 
Point Allerton Station was probably the most difficult and diverse area of operation in all of Group Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gloucester was, you know, we had islands and shoals, and but not like Point Allerton, all those outer islands where they were responsible yep. for in Boston. And the commanding officer there was a very good commanding officer. He ended up, he, anyways, had a great career. Uh, he was on her to qualify, and he gave her 30 days mm-hmm. to qualify so that then she could be leading these women as also. He didn't want to drag it out. And she was only TAD, temporary assigned duty, for 90 days. And he promised her after 90 days, you can go back to Gloucester if you want. Mm-hmm. Well, she got qualified in 30 days. She ran boats. And when her 90 days were up, the CEO called her into the office and said, you've done a great job. We're going to keep you here. <laughs> we want to keep you here. <laughs> and she said, uh, let's talk about this. <laughs> and the rest is history. But mm-hmm. that's, that's an example of what kind of work she did for the Coast Guard. Yeah. We're learning so much. Yeah. We've known this young couple for a long time. But these stories are fabulous. Yeah. I'm almost crying. They're so excited. Uh-huh. Brand new so proud of yeah. you. Well, it speaks so highly of, of uh, what they're I do doing. remember how the Rainsaw College improved when when she was there, what I I've, I can speak to what happened down in the Range Light Cottage after you got there. That place needed a lot of work, and once you were worked there, it became an absolutely immaculate. The basement was you could you could eat off the floor in the basement. It was a wonderful experience, and you did super work there. We've been very excited to hear about this, going out to Squirrel Point and all. I had no idea how hard this job was, and her husband is clearly so proud of her and what she accomplished, too. One of the things that were deficient at the range light station when we got there was the flagpole. Yeah. They had a flagpole, but it was bent at 30 degrees, (laughs) and it was not repairable. Squirrel Point, having just had the keeper leave there, had a beautiful flagpole. Mm-hmm. But it was solid steel. Uh, however, an old Coast Guard shipmate from Gloucester came to visit with his wife one winter day. And we walked out to Squirrel Point and we took that flagpole, put it over our shoulders, and we walked it back out <laughs> and brought it to the range lights uh, and put it up. Nice straight flagpole. Wow. And the reason that the Coast Guard didn't want to replace the flagpole because these lights were real close to being automated right. the entire eight and a half years we were there. Yeah. They just didn't do it. You know, it's I think maybe because it was operating smoothly. Right. It wasn't an expensive unit to keep up. So we were ended up yeah. being one of the last to be automated and we wanted a flagpole. So a budget, we robbed from Peter to pay Paul. A budget was eleven hundred dollars a quarter. For all these uh, three three light stations. For, for painting, maintenance supplies and any big expenditures would go out on contract, or maybe they find funding somewhere else. But that was uh, mm-hmm. that was our budget. budget. Yeah, yeah. Now I understand, Karen and Dan, you were both involved in a rescue. Yes, um, it was. I'm not sure the date. You can fill those. I think in, it was February '83. I don't know the exact date. Okay. Yes, it was. It was the, um, the February holiday. The is that the president's holiday in February? President's mm-hmm. day. President's day. Yeah. So because it was a holiday. There was no large crew at the Bath Ironworks facility, which when the 
during this incident, if they could just immediately respond, it would not have been nearly as serious. But we were living at the Kennebec River Range Lake Station dwelling, mm -hmm. and we received a phone call from a woman who lives in the plant house right across here from the Dublin Point dwelling. She was un understood that we were living here and was hysterically telling us on the landline telephone that was attached to the wall that there were children on an ice floor right in front of us and oh. we needed to do something. Mm -hmm. So of course, we, one of us went outside and there were no children in sight. Once we clarified that, that perhaps it's the doubling point light, yes, it was. And the boys from the shore over by the plant home had gotten on a section of ice that separated from the shore and they were drifting upriver. Mm -hmm. And so we called Booth Bay Harbor Coast Guard, which is the responding search and rescue unit for this area. And the, uh, the rivers were closed in with ice. Yeah. So their only option would be to go offshore and then come up the from the mouth of the Kennebec, which would have taken about an hour or so. Mm -hmm. At the minimum. Uh, there was nobody on duty at BIW because it was a holiday and we just could not sit idle. So we got the only resource we had, which was a very stable canoe. And 17 we, foot aluminum. Oh my gosh. And it was winter. I Fortunately, I had a Jeep for a vehicle. So we threw that canoe on top of the Jeep and we came down here. The road to this dwelling was not plowed at the time. So we, like a sled, and used the canoe as a sled and got this down here. Down here, she had a wetsuit on. I put a wetsuit on, the survival coast, yeah. suit. Well, the coat, no, it was a wetsuit. The Coast Guard gave her, had a tailor-made wetsuit because of her size, so small, the standard sizes couldn't fit. So they tailor-made one for her in Gloucester. So she kept it with her when she came here. Mm -hmm. So she was able to get that on while I got the canoe ready and threw it on the top of the Jeep. Soft top Jeep, we didn't have racks back then. So wow. anyway, we launched right here at the Spencer's property. Mm -hmm. and could see the kids, could see that they were drifting rapidly. Up river. Other ice flows were all around. We maneuvered our way to the children, and at the same time we arrived, the Bath Ironworks. Service outboard boat. Small boat arrived, and the children were rescued. Wow. They, they decided to go on the outboard instead of our <laughs> canoe. I think that was a pretty good decision. We, we did bring extra personal flotation devices, which really yeah. were the most important thing. We is just wanted to get personal flotation devices to those kids. We had no intentions of bringing them on our canoe. Yeah. We just wanted them to have our life preserver for the worst case scenario. Yeah. Was this like a super cold day? Do you remember? It was frigid. Oh, yeah, yeah. it was it freezing. It was a frigid February day. Mm -hmm. um, and we also thought that we lost our dog that day because we did not take time to tie up the dog or even think about the, the fact that the dog was following us this whole time. Oh. It got in the river and tried, tried to swim oh. after us. So as soon as we knew the boys were safe, we then tried to find our dog to rescue our dog. We found the dog on the shore. Yeah, upriver about a half mile. About, had gone about a half mile in the ice. Wow, the dog was okay. Wow, what, what an experience. To learn more about Friends of Doubling Point Light and how to visit the light station, go online to doublingpoint.org.
there's good information on the website. Uh, without doing too much of a commercial for myself, I'll mention that I did a chapter on Dublin Point in my book on Lighthouses of Southern Maine. Uh, the precise title of the book is The Lighthouses of Maine, Southern Maine, and Casco Bay. It's available from Amazon and other online booksellers. It was a real pleasure uh, speaking with the McLeans and the Spencers for this podcast. They're good people, as you uh, said earlier, Bob. They certainly are, Jeremy. And I know from just hearing about the McLeans from the Spencers, they speak very highly. What I know with James and Joyce, to me, they kind of represent the uh, type of caring, dedicated people that we see throughout the National Lighthouse community. They're not seeking any fanfare. They do the job. They do it well. And they're just a pleasure to be around. I couldn't agree more. That's a, a perfect description of, of them. Uh, so as we mentioned earlier, this was part one of two parts. We'll hear the second part of the interview about Doubling Point Light in next week's episode. And you'll be co-hosting again, Bob. Uh, that'll be posted on November 6th. In part two, there's more discussion of the McLean's time as lighthouse keepers, about wildlife in the Kennebec River region, and about efforts to improve access to Doubling Point Light Station for visitors, among many other things that we talked about. And again, uh, you'll be back as co-host, and I appreciate that, Bob. Oh, looking forward to that one, Jeremy, because this is not just about Dublin Point Light, but Dublin Point Light sits on the Kennebec River, and there's so many different aspects of the river and the history and the lighthouse to explore. So it is going to take two episodes, and wow, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're right. It's a, it's a fascinating area. It really is in a very beautiful area. Uh, I, I Just a little hint for people listening, though, if you visit, I, I don't necessarily recommend visiting in the middle of July or August. It tends to be a little mosquito infested at that time. <laughs> I say spring or fall is probably the best time. Would you agree with that, Bob? You are right, Jeremy. Mosquito infested at times, for sure. Green and lush, and at the same time, you may not want to spend a lot of time outside. You may be running for your car, but no, it's uh, visiting these lighthouses at all times of the year. It's, uh, it brings a lot of rewards and sometimes some challenges. <laughs> very, very true. Any lighthouse buffs listening to us uh, know what we're talking about. So before we sign off today, I want to mention an event coming up soon in Florida. The Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and Museum is holding a fundraising event called Rendezvous with the Light on Saturday, November 19th. Right, Jeremy. It will be a special evening of fantastic food from top restaurants, wine and craft beer, live music, and a silent auction under the stars. Proceeds will benefit preservation and education at the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. Go to jupiterlighthouse.org to find out more about that event and to get tickets. And as always, I want to remind everyone to check out uslhs.org to learn about all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, including tours and preservation grants. And while they're at it, I recommend that people also check out lighthousefoundation.org to learn about the American Lighthouse Foundation. Both ALF and the U.S. LHS are doing lots of important work to preserve our lighthouses. They sure are, Jeremy. I think the wonderful thing we can all celebrate, no matter what organization we belong to, is the teamwork. We can learn from each other, we share ideas, and of course, we share the importance of our history and even how to get into some of these lighthouses. So it's a big team and we're all just proud to be a part of it. Right. And speaking of teamwork, I want to uh, give a special thanks to you, Bob, because uh, as you know, I was just part of a U.S. LHS 
tour in down east Maine uh, just uh, ended last week and you helped out a lot. You were on uh, both of the cruises we did as part of the tour, helped to narrate, and you were at I think three of the lighthouses we visited and helped out a lot, uh, especially with uh, our visit to Little River Lighthouse, which is uh, owned by the American Lighthouse Foundation. So just thank you so much, Bob, for all the, all the help you uh, provided. Oh, you're very welcome, Jeremy. The reward was just being around people like yourself and all those on the tour. And we had such great weather on most of those visits. It was fantastic. It was. It was an excellent tour. So as always, to our regular listeners and to our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Little light.